appearances can be deceptive, as we all know. In this week's reading, we bump into someone who is the polar opposite of the babies brought to Jesus in last week's passage. He couldn't be more different. He's grown up, he's confident, he's organised, he's articulate, he's wealthy. Surely he is perfect apprentice material. But we're on our guide after last week. We know that Jesus' existing disciples mostly came from unremarkable backgrounds. And we've heard it from Jesus that it's the babies who best show us the values of the kingdom of God. But here comes this guy. For once, he's asking a sensible God question with no barbs or loaded agendas. Or is he? This morning's reading is Luke chapter 18, verses 18 to 30. The rich ruler. A certain ruler asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good? Jesus answered. No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not give false testimony. Honour your father and mother. All these I have kept since I was a boy, the man answered. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, You still lack one thing. Sell everything you have and give it to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. When he heard this, he became very sad because he was a man of great wealth. Jesus looked at him and said, How hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. Indeed, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Those who heard this asked, Who can be saved? Jesus replied, What is impossible with men is possible with God. Peter said to him, We have left all we had to follow you. I tell you the truth, Jesus said to them. No one who has left home or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God will fail to receive many times as much in this age and in the age to come eternal life. This is the word of the Lord. The first thing that we hear Jesus do in this encounter is push back against the man's opening statement. Why do you call me good? He asks. Jesus is testing and prodding and, and seeing what this guy is all about. Then he goes deeper. How have you lived? How have you treated people? Have you exploited them or loved them? The man's, man's answer is remarkable. I couldn't say it. I don't think you could say it either. He says, yeah, I've lived a good and upright life. I've kept all the commandments. But Jesus doesn't call him out as a liar, which is what we might expect. One thing you lack, he says. 
Now we're getting somewhere. Because this rich man wouldn't have asked his first question if there wasn't an emptiness, a curiosity, a thirst, however well hidden. He's done things by the book. You were probably half jealous, half annoyed, half in love with him at school. He's successful and well manicured. There's no falling on his knees, crying out that he's a sinner. He seems to be meeting Jesus as an equal or a near equal. So we presume that the rich man's pulse quickens at Jesus' phrase, one thing you lack. Here it is. Here's the missing ingredient. But it's not what he, or we, or the disciples are expecting. The easy shorthand morality of the day was rich equals good. Wealth was a reward from God for a virtuous life. The disciples would have been quietly overawed by this man. Uh, maybe some of us would have been overawed by him too. Jesus is not. I wonder whether you've come up short like this before God. Give an inch to God for some self-improvement tips and he wants a mile or two of radical change. Go, Jesus says, sell everything you have and give it to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. The rich man's face drops, creased with sorrow, but also regret. He can't go there. He can't give up his wealth. But Jesus hasn't finished. Jesus confirms it for us. How hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. The focus is fast moving from the rich man to the disciples and to us. The disciples are in deep shock. Who then can be saved? The rich were the good guys, rewarded by God. They did holy and good things. If they can't be saved, what chance have I got? The mistaken awe in which they held the rich was being undone. So should ours, our idolizing the rich and the famous and the fortunate. Remember, it's the babies that Jesus enthusiastically welcomes and the rich man who walks away from the kingdom. It's impossible, says Jesus. That is the point. We rich can't earn or bribe or impress our way into the kingdom of God. It's God's business and gift. We just need to receive open-handed and awestruck and thankful. No down payments, no brownie points stored up. Indulge me in a little historical red herring. It wasn't long before preachers started to find ways round what Jesus is so clearly teaching here. They've had two great but very misleading ideas about this. The first one was to suggest, cheek, that Luke couldn't spell properly. The Greek word for camel is quite similar to the Greek word for rope. Ah, Jesus must have actually said rope. It's easier for a rope to pass through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Well, if you get a rope that is small enough, and if you get a big enough needle, you might just do it. So we rich might be in the kingdom after all. The second is to speculate that the eye of the needle was in fact a small gate 
in Jerusalem, not a literal needle. And again, we can just imagine an unladen camel squeezing and huffing its way through a small gate. Yippee, we rich are back in the kingdom. With the greatest respect to the learned ancient preachers who've said this, it is a bunch of hogwash. The whole point is, it's impossible. So what was Jesus really saying? to this rich man and to other would-be disciples. First of all, money has a unique power to distract us and command our attention and to hold our gaze. It creates arrogance and selfishness and greed and inattentiveness to the poor and vulnerable. It is quite literally something that we put our faith in. We need to be shocked out of our idolatry. There is something radically wrong with every single one of us and great wealth is really efficient at blinding us to this need of God. We all need the gracious invitation of Jesus to see the power of money and to be rescued from the power of money. We rich can't do it on our own. We see wealth and success and respect as things in our favour before God. Turns out they're all problems. Second of all, we must not interpret Jesus' challenge to the rich man as a sign that Jesus' purpose is to spoil our day, to rob us of joy, to suck the life out of our lives. It's actually the opposite. Jesus saw the loneliness and the arrogance and the painful entitlement of this rich man, and he wants so much more for him. Here's how Richard Foster describes it. He says, because we lack a divine centre, our need for security has led us into an insane attachment to things. We must clearly understand that the lust for affluence is a lie. A lie because it has, because it has completely lost touch with reality. We crave things we neither need nor enjoy. We buy things we do not want to impress people we do not like. We're convinced that to be out of step with fashion is to be out of step with reality. But, Foster says, it is time we awaken to the fact that conformity to a sick society is to be sick. Unless, he says, we see how unbalanced our culture has become, we will never be able to deal with the greed within ourselves, nor will we desire Jesus' simplicity. Thirdly, Luke tells us that the rich man grieved at Jesus' invitation. It's the same Greek word used of Jesus weeping in the garden of Gethsemane the night before he's killed on the cross. The word to describe Jesus grieving the imminent shattering of his loving communion with God the Father. Money was for the rich man what the Father was to Jesus, the centre of his identity, the object of his affections, the motive for his life, the thing he couldn't bear to be without. Jesus gives us plenty of warnings about the seductive power of wealth. From a bean counter's point of view, he mentions it 10 times more than he does sexual immorality. Wealth so easily stops us from loving God. Dare we look into his eyes? Or do we fear the unveiling of our veneers and his searching challenge to our misplaced loves. The whole Bible 
encourages us to turn to God with the confident hope that his gaze is of searching love and not contempt. But with lives so full of clutter and horizons stuck in the here and now, we easily avoid the gracious gaze of our Creator God. And if we can't return his gaze, we will never become his followers. We're not all called to sell all we have, though if wealth has become your out-and-out idol, you are. We are all called to be faithful and obedient followers of our Saviour Jesus. And for each of us, this requires a giving up of the myths of security and happiness that we cling to. If we are overwhelmed by the so-called cost of this, we haven't yet heard Jesus clearly. Were we able to do so, we would see that the more dreadful and punishing and costly thing is to walk away from Jesus. The thing we so easily forget when we reread this passage is that Jesus had already done what he was asking the rich man to do. He had already given up the glory and the riches of heaven to become poor so that through his poverty we might become rich. Sunday worship is a great time to do a wealth inventory. Yes, we thank God for our many material blessings, individually and as a church community. And we offer back to God all that he has given us, all our resources and our assets, not just a fraction of them. Yes, we reject the lies that money sells and we buy so willingly and so gullibly. But more than anything, we rejoice that Jesus, our Saviour, loves us more than words can describe and invites us to find life in his kingdom. A few weeks ago, I was chatting uh, with Jesse Rowe. Uh, as you may know, Jesse and Aggie uh, are training uh, to go out and be missionaries in Mongolia. And I've just asked Jesse to share uh, the thoughts of, a, of someone who's training uh, to be a missionary and to share his thoughts on uh, the challenges of this passage. Uh, so over to Jesse. Hi Christchurch, my name is Jesse and my wife Aggie and I and our kids were part of Christchurch for a few years before we stepped out of our comfort zone and began the journey into overseas mission. We are currently studying at All Nations Christian College in Hertfordshire, North London, where we're studying biblical and intercultural studies. And Simon kindly gave us a passage, uh, is a gem of a passage to share on. It's an uncomfortable passage for sure. Most of us in the church would consider ourselves good people, nice gentle, supportive, encouraging. We, we might do a couple of minor sins from time to time, but on the whole, we're good. But Jesus says only God is good. We can do the right thing, but he wants more than that. He says that whatever we are holding on to, for this young man it was his wealth, but whatever we're holding on to, whether that is our income, our job, our car, our family, our passions and our dreams, he calls us to let them go and follow him. Peter's one of my favourite blokes in the Bible because he just always dives in and always has a way of jumping in and saying something profound. But then it turns into, and Jesus says in his challenging way, I tell you the truth. No one who has left his home, 
his wife, his family, his children, for the sake of the kingdom, will fail to receive in this age, in the age that is to come, eternal life. Wow! God has called us into mission as a family. He's called us to go like the first apostles, to go to the ends of the earth. We're trying to get into Mongolia. And for one, people don't know where that is. And for two, they wonder why we feel we should go. It's verses like this that intimidate us as a family, but also inspire us to, to run. We look at crazy fools who took leaps of faith like Chariots of Fire's Eric Little, OMF's founder Hudson Taylor, to the countless missionaries that this church has inspired and encouraged. They took that leap because they believed in something. They believed that God called them, like Peter, to drop those nets and livelihood and possessions and follow Christ. And we can say that, that we did, that's good for then, but how about for now? How, how do we live in the kingdom now? What are we holding on to that we can't let go of that makes his kingdom here on earth as it is in heaven? Maybe we're nuts. Maybe we're family. We're nuts. But we're here, all nations, delving in in our lectures, our conversations, our studies. We've found that there are three things that mark out what life is like as a true follower of Jesus. And to follow him, how to share him with others, it's difficult. I, I think... Often we think it's going to be easy and smooth sailing, but we often think that God's road is broad, but there will be many obstacles we have to face, such as COVID. Secondly, it's not only difficult, but it's dangerous. Like Aslan, Susan Pevensey asks when they arrive in Narnia, is Aslan quite safe? I shall feel quite nervous meeting a lion. Safe, says Mr. Beaver. Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king. If we are to follow in his footsteps, we have to know it's going to cost us a lot. We will, like the rich man, have to lose things that make us feel safe. And finally, it, it's delightful. The young man found his pride made it difficult to give up his livelihood. It would be dangerous to lose his inheritance. And yet Jesus said that through him there would be delight and that would be long-lasting. So we have been inspired by those who have gone before us. And we want to give up our small ambitions and live for something more. It's like you're between the two trapeze and you have to let go and reach out and grab it for his glory. We have to let go and reach out and grab it for his glory. That's what we have learned here at college and we hopefully will put that into practice for Mongolia.